Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia. I'm your host, Paolo Aquino, and we're here with Brian Wong. He's a Chinese-American entrepreneur and investor. He was actually the very first American and the 52nd employee to join Alibaba Group. So, you know, been in the company since the very early days. And for our, you know, listeners out there who are familiar with programs like the eFounders program, mm -hmm. Netpreneurs, all of that stuff, he was actually the guy who established that as part of Alibaba Global Initiatives Division. And he was also the founder and executive director of the Alibaba Global Leadership Academy. So we're having all these years, you know, working with like Jack Ma and all these leaders from Alibaba. He's actually recently put all these learnings and experiences together in a book, Tao of Alibaba, which I'd like to show now, but the Zoom background doesn't actually <laughs> work well with the color of the book. So, uh, try. okay, Brian, <laughs> we're in there. Okay. I'm going to cut in an image here uh, in the video for you guys to see the book. But yeah, so definitely check that out. I think as I was saying to Brian, just before we started recording, you know, reading the book was really a fresh spark of optimism amidst all of the, you know, sort of doom and gloom that's been going about when it comes to the tech markets and sort of, you know, that meme of faith and humanity restored, that kind of meme, it, it sort of gives that that feeling and actually not just a feeling, but also, you know, actually speaks about specific examples and different details of how that has happened throughout the journey of Alibaba and especially from Brian's perspective. So without further ado, thanks so much, Brian, for coming on the show. I know you've been on a whole roadshow of different interviews and podcasts and all of that. But thanks for making time for this one. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Paulo. So obviously, Tao of Alibaba, you've educated a lot of people about this through the programs that you have. But I'm sure there are many folks, including myself, who only heard about it, you know, maybe a few months ago and really got to know this concept. So maybe you can kick things off by sharing with us what exactly is the Tao of Alibaba, maybe in a in a few lines or so. Sure. Well, I'm going to back up a bit and just kind of give a, a quick cliff note version of what is the Tao of Alibaba from the book perspective so people understand the context. And I'll just kind of talk a little bit about the specific management fundamental principles too. So, I mean, the Tao of Alibaba, the book is, is really, you could say it's a, a story of three kind of different parts. First is really as an American who worked at the company for almost two decades, what was my sort of outside perspective on highlighting the enabling factors that led to the rapid rise of China's digital economy, reflecting both the role of government, but also the private sector and how those two really interfaced. And I was constantly asking myself, kind of how did China transform at such a fast rate, given it started with so little, its baseline was virtually nothing. And then, you know, comparing that to Silicon Valley, which is really the leader in so much of the technology that we have today. How did China sort of grow so quickly? And that's what I answer in the first part of the book. So the second part of the book is really the secret sauce, so to speak. And here's where I kind of get into the management principles of Alibaba. And I think this is probably most useful for entrepreneurs or even executives at large companies alike to really understand kind of the management ethos of the organization. And, and this relates to kind of this diagram that I lay out that at the very top, the guiding principles are the mission, vision, and values. Underneath that is really the strategy that kind of drives how to implement those mission, vision, and values. And then you've got the people and organization that really kind of support the implementation of the strategy. And then performance management is how do you really motivate your employees? So that's what I talk about kind of in the second part of the book. And then third, I would say that the Tal Valley Baba, the story is also one of a, of a personal journey and how someone who was raised in Palo Alto, California, went to China and really learned uh, some eye-opening things about how 
you know, the role of business and technology really can affect society for the better and how Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy sort of mix into an organization that I think is, is created something quite unique. So what I always often talk about is I had to leave Silicon Valley to appreciate Silicon Valley and what it has to offer the world, but also see how other parts of the world are contributing to this digital sort of transformation that's impacting the rest of the world. One thing I want to say, though, is that since we are recording this as a video as well, and for season five, we are doing video podcasts. So cool. what, what Brian just described, the, the four elements of the Tao, Alibaba, we can actually just gonna cut in a picture here of the triangle. Oh, good. Yeah, please do <laughs> so, that. So the listeners can actually <laughs> see what we're, can visualize what we're talking about, but you can definitely learn more in the book. And that, that second part yeah. was actually the one where it's a lot of concepts that's not foreign to us. Everybody knows mission, mission, yeah. values. Yes. But then giving that sort of Alibaba perspective, and really talking about it from, you know, the experiences that you guys went through, both, you know, the, the wins and, and maybe even the failures as well. It was really great to read about. And so you've taught this top Alibaba, as I mentioned earlier, through the AGLI, the AGL and all these initiatives. But what yeah. made you decide that it was time to put it into a book sort of format and, you know, write about it? Well, Paulo, I mean, you mentioned the AGI programs, the Entrepreneur eFounders Fellowship program we, we did with you guys. I'm very grateful to Insignia for all the support. And I realized that teaching these, these classes, you can maybe impact 30, 100, sometimes 200 at a time. But in order to really share this knowledge, I thought writing a book would be the most effective way. That knowledge can be packaged very efficiently within this book and then shared with the rest of the world. And oftentimes people don't have the time to sit through a four-week course online or come visit Hangzhou to see you know what's happened. And so I think a book format was, was a very convenient way to do that. But also I kind of reached a, a period in my career where, you know, almost 20 years at a company, I felt like now is a good time to kind of have a milestone event where you kind of encapsulate all that and then think about how do you take that knowledge and apply it in other areas. And then the third reason I'd say I wrote the book is I've been kind of watching how the dynamics of kind of U.S.-China have, have been evolving. And I think that one of the, the things that concerns me most is this lack of engagement, particularly with COVID, you know, it prevented a lot of travel, right? And so one of the things that I realized is that the interaction between people face-to-face, -face, visiting an environment, a city, a, a community, really does help address people's concerns or even, you know, creates more familiarity between people. And not having that, I think, has created more and more distance. And so this book is also a way to personalize and really humanize what's happening in China from a technology standpoint and, and help people to understand outside of China that the people that are running these companies that are part of this whole phenomenon are just like everyone else. They have the same aspirations and they're trying to do good for their communities. I really like what you said in that third point and, you know, you really bring that to life, especially with rural China, talking about like the Taobao yeah. villages and all of that really <laughs> some interesting, oh, for sure. yeah, yeah, some interesting yeah. stories, especially when Jack Ma asked you to, to go to the poorest <laughs> village, see what you can learn, yeah. you like that story. Let's dive more into the book with a few more questions about that. So one of the most interesting aspects, at least for me, was how Alibaba leveraged the Taobao Alibaba approach, as you've described to navigate existential crisis, you know, throughout the company's growth. So maybe to better illustrate what we, what you just ran through a while ago, maybe you can give one example of these, you know, components in action. Maybe I like sure. it easier from the book. <laughs> one of the things that I talk about, not only in that, that management structure, but also in the leadership principles. I mean, there's a, there's a saying we say leading without leading. And that's a very Taoist principle. And, you know, 
the book called the Tao of Alibaba really does try and encapsulate kind of multiple aspects of this Taoist philosophy. One is kind of the path or the way, and so sort of a natural sort of force that directs you or, or a journey that you take as, as part of kind of being who you are. And the second aspect is kind of being in harmony with your environment. And that's also a, a dynamic of this yin yang we talk about. And then third is this sort of embracing of contradictions. So if you think about these three principles in terms of the Tao, what happens in cases where you have crises or existential threats or you know situations where you're, you're very uncertain? Well, if you've got this proper flow in terms of how the leader sort of sets a vision, a mission and a vision, how the team thinks and whether or not they buy into that, whether or not they believe in that, oftentimes the organization will adapt almost instinctually to challenges. And one great example was in 2003. I mean, before COVID, there was an outbreak called SARS, and this was something very serious in Asia. In 2003, it actually affected Alibaba as a company. There was there was an alleged case that one of the employees had SARS and returned to Hangzhou, and that led to a whole lockdown of the the company and, and the business. And you know, keep in mind that was a time when Wi-Fi was not prevalent. We didn't have 5G. Even laptops were were a luxury. And so how, how would an organization be able to operate if everyone needs to leave the office and stay at home? They actually, you know, kind of sealed people into their apartments for, for like 10 days. It doesn't seem like a lot now, given we've gone through a lot, you know, much longer duration, but the technologies and everything were much different, much more rudimentary. Strangely enough, you know, there was such a strong sense of needing to serve businesses because other businesses, our clients were affected by this, that the employees themselves instinctually took their desktop computers they all moved them home. They worked out of their home for that period of time. They continued to answer calls. They stepped up kind of the work that they had to do. And they even had, in some cases, their mothers and grandparents answering phones to help the clients who were all very concerned about what was happening, you know, in terms of the business. So they were able to operate the business remotely without a lot of top-down leadership saying, you must do this, you must do that. But also, they managed to launch a new company at that time called Taobao. And you know, we all know what Taobao is today. It's the largest retail marketplace in the world, Taobao and Tmall. But that all happened during a crisis period. So I think that speaks volumes about how the motivation behind the employees was so strong in terms of needing to serve and wanting to fulfill a mission that even amidst this time, they were able to do great things. Yeah, a really inspiring story. I mean, especially since that yeah. all happened more than it's now 20 years, right? 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 yeah. years ago, yeah. And it's actually, that whole story is actually counterintuitive counterintuitive in itself that to be flexible, you need to have strong foundations to be able to yeah. adapt to different crises. You need to have those like first principles and be able to go back to why you're doing things. Another thing that the book talks about, and I think it's pretty relevant to today, especially now in Southeast Asia, where a lot of startups are facing this bear market, but also a lot of them, are facing growing pains, right? We yeah. To think about things like corporate governance, financial discipline, mm-hmm. all of that. So what can, you know, leaders, especially of these, you know, startups that are, you know, fast growing, learn from the book, especially when it comes to bringing in structure into their company and discipline and all of that? The first thing to say is that no matter how big a company, it will always go through development cycles. And that, that's that been true for Alibaba. If you think about for 23 years, it has grown into what it is today from, you know, 18 people now to about... 250,000 employees and and now the highest GMV of any e-commerce company in the world. But it's it's done this kind of iterations, you know, it's constantly recreating itself. And so as a mature organization, as you grow in terms of size, 
in scale, but also kind of administrative bureaucracy. It's important to think about how do you stay nimble? And one of the biggest challenges I've seen is you become bigger, you become much more of a target. And then the smaller, more agile startups can start you know, chomping at your heels and biting off little bits and, and you become much less flexible. So one of the things that Alibaba did in 2013, if I recall, is that they actually took what was then three major business units and broke them up into 25 smaller ones. Because I think Jack felt like the company was was becoming too slow. People were becoming too, I guess, he felt they weren't being given the opportunity to continue to innovate and fulfill their greatest sort of potential because there were too many, too much bureaucracy. Every decision that you wanted to make had to go through two or three or four people. Whereas if you're in a startup, oftentimes you just have a conversation with, you know, you and the founder or the founder and his lieutenants, and then boom, it's done. So that I think from a, a maturing organization standpoint, in addition to the things you talked about, kind of building up a, a infrastructure that allows for corporate governance and these things, proper financial sort of management, you still need to stay nimble. And so I think it's important to think of it as a cycle as opposed to just a one-way linear movement. The other thing in terms of financial discipline, I would say that, you know, as you become bigger and you raise more money, we always had a saying that money makes you stupid because you start to get lazy and rather than to really figure out how to solve the problem, you throw money at the problem and you either, you know, I don't know how many times I heard people say, oh, I don't have enough headcount or I can't do this because I don't have these people. Well, when you started the company, you didn't have those people and you had to figure out how to do it. And oftentimes you came up with innovative, creative solutions. And I think that is also an important thing to remain really scrappy in terms of the mindset. I think that this is something that's easily lost when you become a large corporation. So frugalness and trying to be, you know, really creative with how you spend money and use it to the fullest is, is an important characteristic. And then when you talk about finally corporate governance, corporate governance, you know, you need to ensure proper transparency, checks and balances as you become larger, things are harder to watch and monitor. So, so you have to have those systems in place. But I also think succession planning is very important mm. because as a founder, you have to realize that you're not going to be at the company forever and you need to enable others to grow and to take on responsibility. And this is one of the hardest things for any founder or entrepreneur is to give up control to others in the company because you feel like you know it all or you're just paranoid that the wrong decisions are going to be made. And like I, I've, you know, I have a startup now and I'm probably the worst culprit of this, even though I talk about this in the book, it's very much like a psychological thing. Mm. And if you're good at doing something because you're used to controlling it, you know, how then you justify or feel okay about giving others that space to try it. And that's something that Jack, I think, is very good at because as a teacher, he was used to empowering others and trusting them. And I think that that, when it comes to corporate governance, you have to think about all the different aspects. Yeah, to the third point of corporate governance, I really found the whole concept of the partners thing in, in yeah. Alibaba really interesting. Maybe yes. you could just give a, a, a brief sort of description of how that worked. For, for of course. Point. So Jack realized that at some point, and he had actually been preparing for his retirement for almost 10 years. Mm. He said, I don't want to die in an office. I want to die on a beach. So I need to prepare my transition. And so what he did over that time was identified 30 something partners. I think it's 38 now who he felt were really the protectors of the company values, the mission and the vision. And this partnership is really a group that was responsible for ensuring the longevity of the organization. Essentially, he took himself 
and then hope that these 30 something partners would share in the same values, but also could carry the company forward when he's not there. And so by doing that, he didn't worry that once he was gone, then all of that would be lost. And so today they make decisions in terms of, you know, board appointments, CEO nominations, and also maintaining the mission and vision and values of the organization. And many of them are founders, co-founders, you know, from mm -hmm. the original 18, but there are also many who are executives who joined afterwards, but are equally passionate about the company and its values. Right, right. But just to clarify, this is not, these partners aren't the board itself, right? They're sort of just like a subgroup within the... Exactly. Within the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the Alibaba partners. Then there's a board of directors. They nominate mm -hmm. people for that board and also the CEO and chairman. But, you know, the, the whole premise on this is that there are many tech companies who are great. And then, you know, as the founders left and the professional managers came in, one of the problems is the professional managers were really focused on kind of managing quarterly profits and earnings so that they can maximize their compensation. Mm -hmm. But they weren't thinking about the long-term wellness of an organization because they didn't have maybe the privilege or the luxury of, of understanding why that company, you know, what it had gone through, why it exists. And they didn't have the incentive to try and address those longer term issues because if they didn't manage the quarterly earnings they might not have a job <laughs> right so, right right so he provides that balance yes <laughs> like exactly. that provides that balance to the sort of intuitive way of how professional managers might might think coming into the company uh, exactly. moving into sort of the southeast asia angle that you write about in the book we talked about agi and uh, agla a while ago and yeah. you know it's, it's all about scaling up that whole teacher philosophy and teacher sort of mindset that jack had but I was curious to know, like, what did Alibaba learn on, on, the, on the flip side? Like, what did you guys learn from, you know, all these sharings that you did with Southeast Asian entrepreneurs? Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm really impressed with what Insignia does in terms of its learning and teaching. I know you guys have a pretty robust program now. And I think that being an entrepreneur is a process of constantly learning. And so by enabling that also as a VC, you have to be constantly in the market and, and learning. I think you guys do a great job of facilitating that. With the AGLA program, Alibaba Global Leadership Academy and AGI, both those programs that we created were really intended to share the Alibaba knowledge from the last 20 years. But I would say on the flip side, we learned a lot from each of these entrepreneurs. And I think the program AGI continues to run its, its trainings. And just today I was contacting some people at Lazada and sharing some of the uh, progress that the entrepreneurs from one of the e-founders classes have, has made. That will be very beneficial to Lazada itself. So I'd say that, you know, one of the things that I, I learned and were very impressed with in terms of the local companies is how they've taken the principles of some of the digital economy developments in China and then applied those in a more localized way to the Southeast Asian market. Also, the progression by which these companies have grown. I mean, some of now the bellwether digital companies like mm -hmm. Gojek, Grab, you know, Alibaba started out from e-commerce, then moved to payments, then went to cloud computing, and then to logistics. And then into things like ride sharing and whatnot. What's very interesting is that, you know, companies like Zojack started out as a, a ride hailing service, you know, motorcycles. And then, yeah, and then they went into payment and then they went into all these other services, you know, commerce and even media, right? Like advertising. The progression of these digital economies can be different in each market. What's most important is that they kind of focus in on the needs of the market. And I think one of the unique things about Indonesia is its traffic and how you don't take a car, you're going to go a lot faster if, you, if you're if you on a motorcycle, right? Right, right? But who knew that that whole business would open up 
completely other opportunities, you know, in terms of like I talk logistics, shopping, food delivery, et cetera, and payments. It's really, really interesting. Another area that I think is interesting is how these companies have adopted technology to their own local markets. The fisheries industry, there's a company called eFisheries, which I think is doing very well in, in Indonesia, but it's growing to other markets. It's even looking at expanding into China. Who would have thought that you apply like e-commerce and, and fintech to the fisheries market? That's something that I think really was pioneered in Southeast Asia. And so there are other companies that have done similar things that I think are really for us or for Alibaba and, and for me personally, eye-opening. And I was really inspired by a company that is insurance tech, a company called Policy Street, which really took this principle as enabling kind of the B40, the bottom 40 in, in society, and then applying the technology to create insurance products for people that are in the gig economy for those who are doing you know, street food vendors. You know, and I think that that is also an innovation that's happened locally, but echoing the kinds of things that have happened in China. So to me, these are all great stories, but it also shows that whether you call it indigenous or local innovation is very rich in terms of how it evolves and takes its own path. I'd yep. like to shift gears again and talk about another interesting aspect of the book for me, which was sort of the conversations that Jack had bringing in people to the company, yeah. one that comes to mind right now is actually the Alipay conversation where Jack was like, you know, do you know anything about financial <laughs> technology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the, the guy was like, no, <laughs> okay, no. you're the perfect guy. Perfect. <laughs> exactly. So what can startup leaders learn from these conversations, right? Both leveraging internal talent as well as attracting top talent like yourself and also Joe Type, CFO, to take their business to the next level. Okay. Well, I would definitely not put myself on the level of Joe Tsai. He's, he's another level, but I, I, I'm honored that you would uh, say, yeah, I'm top talent. But your, your point being, how do you sort of balance that internal versus external mm, hire, yeah. right? I would say that this is a topic I thought about a lot because I saw a lot of success and a lot of failures in this area during my time at the company. I think that certain kinds of talent, like expert talent, world-class is very important in certain areas. You mentioned Joe. Joe was our first CFO, and he's also the finance, legal, kind of in governance head of, of the organization. All of the kind of structures and the financing and everything really kind of was, was led by him. And without someone with his skills, I think the company would not have been able to raise the money it did. It would not have been able to track the investors it did. And that, I think, is you want world-class. In terms of things like technology, I think there's also that element where you want someone who at least knows what's out there in, in the world, in the market, and can identify what is the most appropriate technology for the organization. I would I would make one caveat to that, though, and say that not every company needs world-class technology from day one. I think that that technology leader should be someone who knows what's available, but then be willing and flexible to select what is most appropriate for the market at that time. And, and fortunately, we were able to find that combination even though we had one of the best technologists from Silicon Valley, his mm -hmm. name was John Wu, who invented the Yahoo search engine. We were not a technology company from, from the start. We were much more of a kind of a sales organization building websites. He was able to at least adapt that as needed. For all other areas like sales, product, and marketing, I think that in a market that is so nascent like China at the time, what you need more than just world-class experience is someone who has the right mindset that is agile, adaptable, but also understands the market needs. I mean, it's willing 
frankly, to put in the time to make it work. They have to know how to iterate, they know how to have to adapt, and they have to be willing to put in the hard work, not just pull out templates and say, let's try this because this is what I did in my last company or this is what right. the MBA course taught me. If you look at the company as a whole, you know, you had some world-class experts like like Joe, like Osavio also was the COO. Right. And what he brought was management principles inspired by GE. But again, he had the humility to say, okay, how do we make this work with this team, this market? But then you had the rest of the leaders, some of the people who have become great leaders of the, of the group. Jack himself had no technology experience, but he's the founder of Alibaba Group. He was an English teacher. Taobao was started by a guy named Toto, Toto-san. He was my first boss. He was more of like an internet guy, but he had no retail experience, but he started Taobao. Alipay, you mentioned, was Jonathan, who had, came from a hotel manager experience. And then Tai Now was Judy Tong. She was mm -hmm. the CEO and founder, and she was a company secretary at Alibaba and worked up the ranks. These are all examples of what they call rookies who became great leaders. As I mentioned at the very start that, you know, this book definitely stands out amidst all the sort of media doom and gloom with the tech markets and, you know, being a bear market and all of that. What would you say is something that businesses can learn from Alibaba when it comes to building in a bear market, right? Especially emerging markets, which tend to be, you know, most impacted during, you know, things like global recession. What Jack used to always say is when the sun is out, it's time to fix your roof because when it starts to rain, it's already too late. You could also maybe reference the common phrase, only the paranoid survive. So I felt that, and this also goes to kind of the whole naysayer or contrarian view. Whenever people were celebrating and the economy is really good, Jack's like, now you got to be very careful. Mm -hmm. And so what I think it requires is an entrepreneur to always be thinking about what's ahead. What are the risks that we need to plan for? And I think that will ensure that you're kind of well situated for anything that comes at you and you're you're going to be able to adapt when, when that happens. The other thing I would say is in a bear market is, is going back to your roots and saying, okay, what is it that I can do that's going to help my customer base? And obviously you need to help yourself as a company, but hopefully helping your customers is going to help them survive, which then means they're going to stay loyal to you. And then in the long run, you're going to be building up a sustainable business. Those two things I would say are quite important. And, you know, if I give an example, in 2008, and there was a financial crisis, what we did at that time was actually reduced our price to help the company survive. And ironically, what that did was actually increase sales beyond what we would have expected and also built loyalty for our customers. During COVID, what we did is we, we started to deploy services that helped the mom and pop shops get online because with, with COVID, then no one could actually, there was no foot traffic. So we repurposed certain platforms and helped these, these small sh shop owners get online, but also repurposed our platform to help those mom and pop shops or restaurants who had wait staff that were not being utilized to then help them become delivery people. All those things we were able to do in response to the challenges. And as a result, you know, kind of helped not only ourselves, but also helped our customers. I'd like to actually also ask about your whole writing experience, putting this book together, given that you went through these experiences yourself and, you know, have already been sharing these lessons, albeit not in a, in a book format. Is there something new that you actually learned and throughout the process of writing this book, like something that you didn't realize before as you were putting this together? I learned a lot of things. One is writing a book is a lot harder than I expected. It's actually quite similar also to starting a business. It's lonely. It takes a long time. And you're constantly asking yourself, why are you doing it? Because no one else seems to care. 
The good thing, however, is that once it's done, you feel very proud of the achievement. It's something that feel represents something important in your life, but also has the potential to help others and hopefully will last for a period of time. All that is to say that there are things in life that sometimes in the immediate scheme, you don't always know why you're doing it or you, you ask yourself, why am I suffering so much? But again, this goes back to this mission and vision, but for you as a person, like wh why do you exist in this world and what is it that you want to achieve? And I think that an entrepreneur needs to ask himself that question in the same way that a, a book author needs to ask him or herself that question, why am I I'm making this investment? And there needs to be a greater purpose because every day that I would sit down in front of the computer at 9 p.m. till 12 a.m. and then in the morning from like 7.30 to 8.30, it was painful. When you have writer's block, you're like, geez, this is totally ridiculous. <laughs> And it cuts into your social life. It, it just, it's like one long homework assignment that doesn't go away for two years. Imagine that. Right, but, right. but you're like, I got to do this. I got to do this because I think it's important. I want to share this with the entrepreneurs. If I don't do it, I'm going to regret it. And I want to look back, say, you know, in 30, 40 years and say, okay, this is something I contributed to the community. Someone who has also gone through that process of putting a book together. Uh, oh yeah, that's the, right. You've written two books, right? Yeah, yeah. I had a yeah, was able to yeah write one with Dingan as well. Yeah, so that definitely went went deep, <laughs> fast. <laughs> but You're was, a glutton for pain, Paulo. <laughs> I, I I respect. Yeah, now now we'd like to go into a corner. Uh, our hashtag Minute Masterclass. There, there's a lot of talk about ESG, you know, sustainability ESG these days. What can businesses learn from Alibaba in terms of one measuring and you know two monitoring sustainable impact? What frameworks do you guys use when it comes to that? The funny thing is that ESGs as a, as a term really came into existence just a few years ago. Yeah. But since the start of Alibaba, it has been something that before we even knew what they were, we were doing. And I, and I, and I actually personally witnessed this when we were going around after the IPO with Jack and people would say, oh, you know, you're doing this great stuff for the environment. Oh, you're doing this great stuff for women's empowerment. And Jack's like, oh, really? I just... That's kind of what we already do because he always looked at the company as an ecosystem. We brought in experts from like the Nature Conservancy that talked about biological ecosystems and the importance of how things fit together. We've been very proud of the leaders that we have in the company, which over 33% of the, the, the senior management happen to be women and 50% of the staff are women in a tech company. And so that was something that we just felt was normal and natural, but people started pointing it out. And I think that if anything, these ESGs, and then the governance part was really about survival, right? We talked about the Alibaba partnership, but these things were done because I think they were motivators to Jack and the team and all of us who joined the company for the work we did. And if you look at the goals and objectives, say in the vision statement that they have today, it's not about how much revenue or how much profitability the company is gonna make. Although we did have GMV, targets at one point, but they weren't the vision statement. The vision statement talks about jobs created, mm -hmm. talk about the number of SMEs that will be profitable. And the thinking behind that is if you're helping your community, if you're helping your customers, then you're going to be creating value for yourself because you're creating value for, for your constituencies or your, your, your customers. They also have programs like this Ant Forest program, which essentially uses technology to influence people's behavior to be more conscious of the environment and also do personal carbon ledger. They can take those carbon credits and plant trees. 
over 450 million trees, I think, have been planted in China mm. thanks to that program. That is all just part of a lot of this is bottom up. You know, the, yeah. the employees think of things. Already but also, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just part of the DNA. What I really appreciate about that whole experience that Alibaba has had with ESG is that it never really was like, quote unquote, ESG as we know it, or it's something yeah. that you sort of integrate later on. People might sometimes really complicate the, the heck out of it. But it really just goes back to why are you doing what you're doing, right? Which, yeah. which is a, a theme of, of, of the book and you know of our conversation today. So on that note, moving on to our rapid fire round. So a lot more, you know, short and sweet answers. Just some fun questions, I guess. Uh, first right. is, what digital technology or innovation excites you the most today? I would say generative AI. I'm not an expert on all this. I know there's a lot of different ones emerging, but obviously Chad GPT is the mm -hmm. one everyone's talking about. But I, I'm, I'm excited about this not because I think it's all good per se. I think there's a lot of risks because people don't know how to parse the information in terms of accuracy and where this information comes from. But I do think that in other ways, it's going to make people more productive and it's going to have major ramifications on how we as a society do our work and interact and think about things. And so I think that anything of this magnitude of potential impact needs to be understood and I'm particularly uncomfortable with anything to me as a black box. And so I, I don't like to just blindly follow stuff, even though, yeah, I do use Google search engine. I don't know what's in the algorithm, but I do know what the principles are behind that. Right. And so yeah. I think it's very dangerous if you kind of just type something in and take that at, at face value, at least yeah. at Google, like you, you have sources that you know where it comes from. Right. I think we need to, with AI, just really be careful, but at the same time, be excited about what's the possibilities are. If you were given the resources to produce a Netflix series, what would it be about? I want to do this. Maybe uh, someone in your audience will help work with me and, and we can co-fund it. I want to do a historical fiction uh, film about Georgetown Penang from the late 1700s to early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a fascinating place because it's this entrepot of, of a mixture of cultures. It was a time of globalization. It was a time of historical significance. Sun Yat-sen went down there mm. as a hideout for the Chinese Revolution. It was where a British general who lost the war against American independence, Cornwallis, has something named after him. And it's also where you have this blend of all these rich cultures, Indian, Malay, British, Jewish, Chinese, and Armenian, I guess, in war. So anyone listening, I guess Brian's hiring. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, let's put something together. Yeah. Right. Looking back now, what is a skill, you know, soft skill or hard skill that you believe you should learn back in your time as a student, university or even way earlier? Uh, I just wish I had more appreciation for math, physics, computer science. I mean, I was curious about all of them, but I didn't do enough. I mean, I really respect people like Elon Musk who kind of is intuitive, right? Yeah. And then also, I wish I had studied more music. I, I was a musician, but I just wish I had mastered it to a level where I could kind of compose more. And the reason why I have like these hard sciences and kind of the arts all together in one is because I think that the left brain, right brain, you want to develop both because the mixture of those then creates amazing possibilities that hopefully are things that generative AI cannot do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I like how you went back there. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your What's your most memorable trip to Southeast Asia? Yeah, maybe you can give the place and then what you did. It was Angkor Wat 2001. It was very new. Siem Reap, there wasn't a single five-star hotel, but we got to explore the temples. And, you know, I think what Angkor Wat showed to me that there was great civilizations that existed in the past that 
we are maybe not always aware of. That was a mixture of Hinduism and Buddhism, but also Angkor Wat is the largest kind of religious structure in the world, and it represented an earthly model of the cosmos, a miniature replication of kind of the universe, all built in stone. And there's a lot of kind of cosmology principles, even the way the sun, when it comes through and it shines into the structures, has a logic behind it. I think it's just amazing to, it's to show that, you know, we don't have everything figured out. There are people that had things figured out way, way back that maybe we have forgotten yeah. these systems in these ways. Right, right. And it probably requires some revisiting of history. You really like that answer. Nobody has uh, given that answer before. Okay. Yeah. What's your yeah. favorite activity to de-stress? I like deep sea fishing or walking along the beach at sunset. I'm very much a water person. Deep sea fishing. What's the biggest catch you've You've had. I caught a sailfish that was like, like five feet long. Really I've awesome. caught many in Costa Rica. Really awesome. But even when you're not fit, catching anything, just sitting out on the water is really relaxing. Anything you've read or taken up recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Obviously, Tao Valley Baba is recommending yeah, that. Tao Valley Baba, hands down. <laughs> I mean, after you read the Tao Valley Baba, maybe Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. I'm mm -hmm. getting into that, and I'm trying to think about how you can use technology to actually drive change, behavioral change through tiny habits. And this episode is coming out on Valentine's, Feb 14th. Oh. So obviously, I love... Can't leave you without a question on love. So what's the biggest thing you've done for, for love? <laughs> if you don't mind sharing. <laughs> yeah, no, like I could tell you some cheesy like proposal thing, which I, I did in front of 400 <laughs> people. But oh, the, uh, the really heartfelt, this is a little bit more serious, is last, or no, 2021, my mother unfortunately passed away. But it was also a time when my second daughter was born. So when I think about, and that all happened within one month. So I had to leave China at a time when there was the COVID travel restrictions, figure out how to get out, got to the U.S., had to tend to my mother who passed away with us all, my father, my brother next to her. And we had to take care of all the arrangements. Then I had to fly back to China to tend to my wife who was giving birth, who ended up giving birth early and had to fly herself down from Shanghai to Hong Kong to give birth. Then I had to go down to Macau to meet her where she was quarantining to come back to China. And that whole logistical thing, if you think about it, just one of those events was enough to stress someone out. I did that all within like three weeks. And surprisingly, my mind was so clear and I was not stressed and was just focused on getting things done. And to me, that it's the power of, you could say it's the power of love. It's the power of just kind of the, the human will to, to, to power through things because they were obviously the most important people in my life. And um, uh, I look back on that and just amazed that we were able to achieve all that in that amount of time. Thanks for sharing that really heartfelt yeah. story of the human spirit. And uh, yeah. on that note, you know, thanks so much, Brian, for coming on the show. Obviously, if, if you folks wanted to check out Tao of Alibaba, we're leaving a link in the podcast description. Yeah, please. Uh, Appreciate <laughs> your support. Cut to another, cut to another picture <laughs> of the book. <laughs> thanks again, Brian. Hopefully, we can catch up again soon. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. And say hi to England. <laughs> <laughs>